There in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28 through 40, let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And when Jesus had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do we loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. They that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give Thee thanks for Thy word of truth, which is able to save our souls. And we ask that as we hear Thy word preached, and as we receive this word, we ask that Thou would be pleased to give us understanding and insight. Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture, may we know Christ more. May we come to find Christ our joy, our delight, and our King. And so receive the meditation of our hearts and bless thy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, as we look at this familiar passage of Scripture, I think there's a sense in which we come to these historic passages like the entrance of Jesus in Jerusalem or those things that we will see as we come to those uh, passion narratives. There's a sense in which we just read through it as just a typical historical narrative. And yet, within those historical narratives, we find wonderful truths that teach us more about who Christ is. 
And as we come to this passage, we find the entrance of this king, the Messiah, entering into Jerusalem. If you have followed any of the pageantry out of London with the coronation of King Charles III, you will find some wonderful parallels, and yet none of them compare to the greatness and the grandeur of this king who comes riding into Jerusalem with the people giving their praise unto him. And so as we consider our passage this this morning, I think we have to understand each passage of Scripture that we look at is set in a context. This section of Jesus' final earthly ministry takes place in Jerusalem. They're covering chapter 19, verse 28, through chapter 21, verse 38. We find those events taking place within Jerusalem. That is the final destination of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every event, every miracle, every teaching, everything that has led up to this point has been with one purpose in mind, to set his mind, to set his heart, to set his gaze on Jerusalem, because it is there where Jesus will fulfill the culmination of his ministry on behalf of his people. And so we find here in verses 28 through 44, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And then in chapter 19, verse 45 through 21, verse 4, we will discover later the rule of Jesus within the temple. And then in verse 5 through 38 of chapter 24, we will see that final uh, selection or section in his earthly ministry about the prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. But here in the passage before us, we discover the final conflict. We discover the final culmination and the consummation of Christ's earthly ministry. These events are the final work of Jesus' ministry. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus, Israel's prophet, priest, and king, is received and ushers in the Messianic age. We live in a time when there are those, even within reform circles, that think that the Messianic age will be ushered in when Christ sets up his millennial kingdom. And yet Christ ushers in his kingdom as he comes into Jerusalem. He begins that messianic ministry that is still continuing until that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at his second advent. And so we see in this section a divine comedy. If you know the the classical understanding of comedy, comedy is both triumph and tragedy. The scene set before us is the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ as he rides into the city and the people's acclamation. But the tragedy comes in the opposition and the lament. And later, 
in his betrayal, his suffering and his death. But even in that, that tragedy is turned into triumph. And so this entry into the city is not what we traditionally have called that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. That was all added later, much later in the stage of history. Jesus is simply coming into the city for the Passover celebration. It's not even observed on the first day of the week. There's a whole long week of events. And Jesus comes not in triumphal entry. He comes in triumphant procession. He comes as the divine warrior. He comes as Israel's king to reign in triumph. To reign as king over the people. And so as we look at this passage, three things I think we discover and will help in our understanding of this text this morning. The first thing is the king revealed. Now as we look at this event, as Jesus comes into the city, as he ascends up to Jerusalem, we find this unexpected event. Is this a planned event? What event took place? Why the public fanfare? Some scholars see a contradiction here. They see a contradiction between the manner of Jesus' earlier ministry and now his entrance or his procession into Jerusalem. They see a contradiction because here Jesus, um, we see a public fanfare. We see loud acclamation that we've not seen in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so the question is, is this an unexpected event? Why all this fanfare? Well, I think there's several reasons why this account shows us all of the fanfare, all of the events that are taking place. And the first reason is to fulfill prophecy. Now, in Luke's account of the gospel of this particular um, entry, we don't find the reference to the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. But in Matthew's account, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and in Mark's account, verses 11, 1 through 10, we see this reference to... Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And so the reason that Jesus comes in the manner in which he does is to fulfill that prophecy of the Old Testament. If you look back in Zechariah chapter 9, that prophecy at the end of the Old Testament, that minor prophet... In Zechariah chapter 9 in verse 9, the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly 
and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. And then in verse 10, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from river to river, even unto the ends of the earth. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. And there in chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah, we see the events foretold of the rebuilding of a temple. What will happen to God's people? The temple was destroyed here in Zechariah's time. And yet, Zacharias speaks of a time when the temple will be rebuilt, when God's people will gather together, and it will be a glorious future. In fact, in this text, he shows there in verse 9 that the the triumphal procession of Christ into Jerusalem at the beginning of his passion and death as king is a promise found in the Old Testament. Matthew records this, but Luke does not record this other than to make reference to it. But here as Christ comes into the city, he comes to cut off the chariot from Ephraim, to cut off the horse from Jerusalem. And verse 10 speaks of those events that will be fulfilled later in Jerusalem. But he comes... To fulfill that covenant of blood where he would set forth prisoners free and that he would bring salvation. But there in verses 9 through 10, we see clearly in Zechariah the coming of a king. But in verses 11 through 17 of that passage, we see victory for the people who hear this news. And so we see a fulfillment of prophecy. There in our passage before us, Jesus sends his two disciples to look for this cult. And the question is asked, what's with the donkey? And the donkey plays a pivotal part in this prophecy. Because the donkey is that instrument upon which the Lord Jesus Christ would sit as king, fulfilling that promise of Zechariah chapter 9, that your king will come, what? Riding on the back of a donkey. And so we find the fulfillment of all of that prophecy. But notice at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Here's another prophecy that is fulfilled. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek suddenly shall come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, who may abide the day of his coming? 
Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. As we will discover later in this section of Luke's account of the gospel, the judgment or the day of God's judgment speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. It does not speak as dispensationalists like to to, uh, inform us that it, it does not speak of the second coming of Christ in judgment here in Malachi chapter 3. It speaks of the coming of God's judgment when he brought destruction upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. And all of this clearly fulfills the prophecy. But there's another reason that Jesus comes in the manner that he did and why he is revealed in this way. And that was to avoid being led away by the Jews. In, if Jesus came in secret, or if Jesus came without all of the fanfare that we see here, the Jews would have secretly removed him. But by coming into the city with the crowds following him, with the people worshiping him, how could they remove him? The people would have revolted. And so Jesus came in this manner so that he would not be removed. I draw your attention to John chapter 11, verse 57. John's account of the gospel, which is uh, not a similar account, but shows the triumphal procession of the Lord Jesus. There in chapter 11, verse 57 of John, It says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, that is Jesus, he should show it that they might take him. And then over in chapter 12, verse 19 of John, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. And so the Jews were very careful that they did not remove the Lord Jesus Christ. But he would be removed at the appointed time set by the Father and not one moment sooner. But thirdly, there's another reason why Christ is revealed in this manner as king. And that is to publicly identify as the Messiah, Israel's king. There in verse 28, you see the connection to the parable of the ten pounds that we saw in verses 11 through 27 of chapter 19. There the parable tells of the nobleman who received the kingdom. And here Jesus describes himself as the nobleman who comes into the city to receive a kingdom. And so even all of these things that led up to his coming shows that it is a fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus would come as king. He would come in judgment fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. But as Jesus comes and reveals himself as king, he comes in dignity. He comes in in identity. There in Matthew's account of the gospel in chapter 21 and verse 10, 
Here's a little different account of what Matthew tells. And yet all of this is for our learning and for our instruction. And when Jesus was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And so here we see Jesus coming in dignity. We see Jesus coming, identifying himself, that even the crowds recognized that he was the Messiah. <clears throat> he came when he rode in to Jerusalem. He came in his prophetic dignity to accomplish all things and to bring the truth to the people. He came in his priestly dignity as the mediator of the new covenant, as we saw there in Zechariah. He publicly declared that he is the one who came to put away sin. He came in his kingly dignity to reveal himself as the Messiah who would establish his kingdom among men. And as this king reveals himself, we see <clears throat> very clearly that Jesus comes to show through the fulfillment of prophecy that he indeed is the one who would come to restore all things and to bring his kingdom to bear upon the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ coming in triumphal procession shows that he is the king who will come to assume a theocracy, that he will return to that restored temple, which John shows in the Revelation is a picture of that glorious temple of which all of his elect will become citizens of. And so his kingship is a fulfillment of what Zacharias tells us, that he would bring salvation, that he would claim to be king, and that he would come and cleanse the temple, and that he would come to reveal himself as Israel's king. Here, there's some couple of points here in the passage that clearly articulate the fact that he's revealed as king. Now, Matthew and Mark show at the beginning of this narrative that Jesus comes into Jerusalem with the crowds of people. Luke doesn't state that. In verse 28 on the surface, it seems as if Jesus comes into Jerusalem alone. But notice as he comes, he sends two of his disciples off to take care of finding this colt on which he would ride into Jerusalem. And notice the details of this account. It's, it's amazing to see that Jesus had everything already prepared. You go into the village... 
Look for a cult on which a man had never sat. That is so indicative of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. That only the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, would sit upon that animal. Only Jesus Christ would come. And so it had to be an animal that no man ever rode upon. But it indicates that this animal was set apart for the master service. Just as the elements of bread, wine, and water are set apart in the sacraments, so this animal was set apart. An, a, a common, ordinary beast set apart for the master service and for Jesus to sit upon an animal that no man sat upon show that it's not an ordinary animal, that it is one set apart to reveal to the people the King, the Messiah. And Jesus even says, if they ask, why are you taking that animal? Say, the Lord has need of it. Now, isn't it ironic that Jesus simply says, if someone asks you, why are you loosing this animal? Just tell them the Lord has need of it. Well, who's the Lord? They knew. Jesus had already prepared their hearts for the receiving of these two disciples who would have need of it. And when the man asks, why are you taking that animal? They says, the Lord hath need of it. And the text says they were, and they, they that were sent went their way and found even as Jesus had said unto them. And so as they were asked, why are you loosing this cult? They said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself in all the details? You know how often we miss the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed to us in all the details? Perhaps in those common things that we see within his creation. In the wonderful working of his providence day by day. He reveals himself and oftentimes we don't see it. But yet Jesus revealed himself to these disciples. As he sent them to find this cult. For the master. But we also see the revelation of this king. As they come to give him the honor and the worship. That we find in this passage of scripture. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed through prophecy. But he's revealed to the people. They see him. There's this public fanfare. There's this acclaim, this loud acclaim that the Lord Jesus Christ is king. But secondly, we see, <clears throat> we, we see the king recognized in verses 35 and 38 particularly. The disciples recognized him as he came into the city. I think this is important because Jesus had revealed Three times to his disciples. The son of man will suffer. He'll die. And he'll rise again. They didn't quite fully understand what that meant. It's not that they did not believe it. It's just that they didn't fully understand it. 
But now as Jesus comes into the city, they recognize him. They recognize him more fully because he's been revealed to them. The disciples recognized him in all the detail. As they approach the city, Jesus is placed upon this colt. Notice, and this is a little different from Matthew chapter 21, verse 7, and Mark chapter 21, where it says that Jesus came riding in to the city on this colt. But Luke says that when they brought the colt into the city, that they brought him to Jesus, they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. Now that to me is striking, to think that the disciples, that the people who recognized him placed him on that cult after they laid their garments on the back of that cult, indicating that this was not an ordinary king. As much as we enjoy all of the pageantry, perhaps some of you don't, but I have lived in under great of the United Kingdom several times in different phases of my life and I've always been fascinated to see the pomp and ceremony but none of that even comes close to what we see here that this is not just some king that's coronated in in uh, Westminster Abbey this is not some king who's given a title this is a king who's revealed this is a king who is recognized by the people and as they place him on the donkey it indicates that they have enthroned Jesus as their king. Spreading their clothes upon the donkey, spreading their clothing on the street has a royal connotation because this is a king. This is one who rides into the city in triumphant procession as Israel's king. The spreading of the clothes has a connotation to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. There in chapter 9 it shows the anointing of Jehu as a king in Israel. Jehu is commissioned to execute judgment against the house of Ahab. But there in verse 13, it says this, Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs, and they blew their trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. When the people put their garments on the back of the cult, when they put their garments in the street where the donkey would walk, they said, Jesus is our king. And as he rode nigh toward the descent of the Mount of Olives, there in verse 37, 
It says the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Now the whole multitude of the disciples included the twelve apostles. It also included many others who had followed Jesus. And they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 37 is amazing. As the people here recognize that he is their king, and because they have enthroned him as their king, they begin to cry, Jesus is our king. Just as the people in London gave their allegiance to King Charles III, and it was declared the king, Charles III, so Jesus here in greater glory, in greater honor, in greater dignity, as seen as the king for all of his mighty works. Now, how can the people praise God for all the mighty works that they had seen if they had not seen them? These are the people that had been with Jesus. These are the people that had seen the miracles. These are the, the uh, people who had heard many of these parables that we have seen leading up to this. And now these same people give praise to God because of the mighty works that they had seen and no man can give worship and praise unto God until he sees the mighty works of God. Until it's been revealed to him by grace. Until he comes to recognize by that working of grace in his heart that Jesus is king. And so they testified to the works that they had seen. Saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here, as the text shows us, this king who is revealed, this king who is recognized, is a king of mercy. He's a king of peace. He's a king of grace and glory. No other king could ever be seen in all of this, this glory. No other king could, could show greater glory and honor than this king. And there, as Jesus begins his triumphal procession into Jerusalem, the people worship him. The people give him homage. People receive him as their king. And so in our third and final point, they recognize him and they receive him. By their placing Jesus upon that donkey as they, as they begin to see him ride in the city in coronation as their king. He is made their king that day. He is crowned as king, not in some millennial earthly kingdom yet to come, but in his triumphant procession, Jesus comes and is received by the people. 
But notice the conflict. We see the triumph. But now we begin to see the tragedy of this comedy. The Pharisees say among the multitude, or some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto Jesus, and notice they're watching him. They've been following Jesus. The Pharisees were there every point of his ministry, just following every detail. But here they say, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Luke doesn't tell us why they said that. But they wanted him rebuked because they did not want Jesus to be their king. They wanted a king who would free them from the tyranny of Rome. They wanted a king like people in our day want a king. Someone who will give us bread. Someone who will give us what we want. But Jesus comes as king over a spiritual kingdom and they rebuked the disciples because they did not want him to be received as their king. And Jesus says, I tell you, that if they don't praise him, that if they hold their peace, these stones will cry out in praise and adoration to this king. And Jesus here tells these religious leaders, these spiritually blind men, Oh, Jesus will be praised, even if the praise comes from these stones. And so he is received by the people as their king, but in contrast, he is not received as king by these Pharisees who rebuke him. And as we consider this passage this morning and understand the wonderful revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as King as we understand His recognition as the one who fulfills all of prophecy, who comes in dignity and honor. We see that He's received as King because they've seen what the prophets of the Old Testament claimed that He would do. He fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament in every detail. And now they receive him because they've seen what he claimed. Not only claimed, but actually did. And by those mighty works, they testify that there's no greater king. There's no greater honor. There's no greater glory than this king who comes as our king. Now the question as we consider this passage this, mor this morning is how do we view this king? How do we view the Lord Jesus Christ? There are many even within the visible church that want to rebuke him. In fact, there are many people within the church that when you speak and testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say, no, I, I can't listen anymore. This, this is too much for me to bear. There are people who, who don't want to hear 
of Israel's king. And yet he is to be received because he comes to bring salvation to a people who would readily receive him. There in John's account of the gospel in chapter 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave them the authority to become sons and daughters of the living God. Friends, unless this king gives you right and authority, you will never own him. You will never receive him as your king. Only Christ can invite himself just as he did in the house of of, uh, Zacchaeus. Only Christ can come and say, I am coming into your house today. I'm coming to stay. And the question this morning is, have you received Christ as king? Not have you affirmed something by rote memory, not because you have some doctrine that you've stored up in, our, in your mind, but have you received him in the affection of your heart? Have you received this Christ who indeed is worthy? Oh, I'm afraid when we come to a passage of scripture like this, we just simply go through all of the details of the account, but never stop to consider that Jesus will have the right and the authority to become king over whomsoever he wills. And the question is, if he's your king, have you given him all of your allegiance? Have you given him every affection of your heart? Because when the multitude of people began to rejoice and praise God for his mighty works, they, in the affection of their hearts, recognize him as their only king. As we come to an election season, which is creeping upon us again, there will be those who will want a certain president whom they think will change everything. But friends... When Jesus becomes the king of your life, all things are made new and all things will indeed be glorious. Have you received this king this morning? Have you recognized him? Is he your king? That is the question this morning. Because as we saw there in Matthew's account of the gospel, it says, as the people came into the city. They asked, who is this king? People said, this is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And there is no other king that is worthy of your allegiance and your worship. And so as we consider this king this morning, as he comes in triumphant procession, let us give all of our worship and our adoration unto him. And let us receive him as the king of mercy and grace. 
who will change our hearts and our lives and will conform us to his image. May we pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, we do come before thee in praise and adoration for all of the mighty works that you have done. We most particularly give thee thanks for that working of your grace in our hearts. We confess, O Lord, that oftentimes we simply come to the scripture and see only the details, but give no thought to the fact that you have revealed yourself as king. O Lord God, we do pray that we would give our allegiance only unto thee, that we would not give our allegiance to horses or men, but that we would give our allegiance only unto thee. For you are the king who has ascended into heaven. You are the rightful king who will come one day in glory to judge the living and the dead. Fill our hearts with joy and praise this morning as we remember thy mighty works and as we see the working of thy grace in our hearts. For we ask this, we ask this in your mighty and holy name. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.